Are you guys ready for the word this morning? Let's go ahead and pray as we come to it. Father, we just thank you for your goodness and your great love. And Lord, as we study your word this morning, I pray that each and every one of us would grow, that we would learn, would have a greater revelation of who you are. And Lord, we just want to continue every day to grow into the measure and stature that is Jesus Christ. Father, we don't want to be the same way we were yesterday. We want to be closer to you, more mature in our faith, and Father, walking in truth like we never have before. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to go ahead and we had finished up the book of 1 John, and then we went into our, our series of the culture of who we are. And now we're going to go ahead and, and finish up 2 John. Next week, Pastor Joseph is going to minister on 3 John. But today is 2 John. 2 John is the second shortest book in the New Testament. Did you guys know that? I think the first shortest is Jude. It only has 13 verses in it. And I know what you guys are thinking. Well, good. This ought to be a quick one. <laughs> No, we got some stuff to go through today. Hope you're not too hungry. Hallelujah. But it's, it's only 13 verses. It's 245 Greek words. This would have fit on a single sheet of paper, papyrus, as it would have been called back then. And uh, the truth is, it's just a short, to-the-point exhortation by John. And we're going to see as we read this letter, John's going to use some, some kind of key words to unify his message in this letter. And you're going to see that though he's going to use the word truth five different times. He's going to use the word love four times. He's going to use the word uh, commandment, everybody's favorite word, four times. Walk three times, teaching three times, children three times. And he actually utilizes a rare word that's hardly ever used in the New Testament, but that's the word antichrist. That actually only, you only find it in 1 John and 2 John. And in 2 John, he's going to kind of be reiterating a lot of the stuff that he went over in 1 John. He's dealing with false teachings that he would dealt with in his first letter. Turns out that this happens everywhere. These false teachers are coming in trying to make a mess of things. And in this letter, you, this letter, you're going to see it's addressed to the elect lady and her children, which turns out that might be a little bit more complicated than it actually sounds. And it's going to focus on hospitality, but maybe not in the way you might think, right? You're thinking, oh, it's focused on hospitality. It's talking about how we should be hospitable to others. And it's true that we should, but we also need to be wise in who we're hospitable to. And that's actually what he's going to deal with in this letter. Because the reality is, is we have to be careful not to open our homes to false teachers and those who would be bringing false doctrines or a different gospel than what the apostles preached. Because when you do that, if you're supporting such individuals, you become accomplices and what they're teaching. You become accomplices in their deception. So to sum it up, in this letter, John's going to tell his children to walk in truth, obey the commandments, to love one another, and guard yourself against uh, the teachings, uh, guard the teachings of Christ so that they will not be uh, used in deception, or somebody would change them and deceive others, which is what John refers to as people that are the Antichrist do. Amen? All right, so let's go ahead and get started. Second John verses 1 through 3. It says, the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. From God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and in love. So, You'll notice in this letter, and you're also going to see the same thing in, in 3 John, is it actually doesn't address 
who the letter's to or who the letter's from. It doesn't ever say this letter's from John, but the reality is, is that, that all throughout church history, this, this letter has been attributed to the Apostle John. In the letter, he only refers to himself as the elder. He also uses the same title in 3 John. So if we, if, we, if we understand that the letter has always been attributed to the Apostle John, this, this title, the elder, it's not just referring to some local church elder who's writing this letter. This is actually coming from the Apostle John. You can almost think about it like not some elder, but the elder. He is the elder to this group of churches that he's ministering to. And by using this title, John's emphasizing his personal position and his relationship with the recipients of this letter. The truth is, is that who he is, his title, how he's, who he's speaking from, the authority with which he's speaking from, and the, because of the issue he's dealing with is more important than just his name. He wants them to know this is coming from a position of authority. It's something that they need to take seriously. Those receiving this letter, by hearing it come from the letter, he's actually conveying the respect and the authority that he's already garnered with this group of people, this elect lady and her children. And now we get to talk about the elect lady and her children. There are actually quite a few viewpoints on who this specifically is. There's actually three distinct viewpoints. The first one is, and this is actually what a majority of scholars attribute this to, is that it's, it's a figurative speech referring to the local church and its members. And if you look at any of the modern scholars that are, that are teaching on this now, this is actually what they've decided it is. This is what they believe it is. It's not John specifically talking to a, a specific person and her children, but instead he's talking to a specific church and its members. And you'll notice that when we get to verse 13 at the end, you're going to see some very similar um, wording that kind of can help us come to this conclusion. The other option is some would say that this is figurative of the, of the global church. He's not just talking to a specific church, but he's talking to all churches. And then the third option is that he is, in fact, speaking to some specific lady and her children. Now, you're hearing this and you go, wow, I don't even know there's that many options that could be for this simple phrase, the elect lady and her children. But I've got good news. It doesn't matter if he's talking to a specific church the global church, or to this lady and her children, the application for our life is the same either way. It doesn't matter because the purpose of the letter, what he's talking about in the letter, what he's teaching in the letter is the same no matter who he was talking to. It's still important. It's something that we need to pay attention to and apply in our lives. Amen? Amen. And then he goes on. He says, to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth... He says, you know what, who I'm speaking to, the elect lady and children, I love in truth, and not only I, but all of us who are in the truth also love this lady and, and her, her children. And the thing about this is, it's actually something that we could probably put into practice ourselves. How many know this letter is, is, is John dealing with an issue that's going on? And sometimes when we have people that, that uh, uh, we are an authority over, we have to deal with issues. This goes from um, at your workplace to if you have children or even in the church, people that, that you're teaching and discipling, sometimes you have to deal with issues. And dealing with issues isn't fun. 
But one of the best things that you can do before you start dealing with an issue is remind people that you love them. And John says, I don't just love you. I love you in truth. This isn't something I'm just saying to try to get, to, to get what I want, but I really love you. I care about you. And matter of fact, so does everybody else who walks in the truth. And when you'll do this, you'll find that people are much more apt to accept any kind of teaching or correction or discipline or guidance if they actually know you love them and, and you care about them. You're not just trying to flex your own authority, but instead what you're doing is, is, is all about them. It's to help them because you love them and you care for them. If you're ever in a position of leadership, this is good advice. You should start with telling people that you love them and tell them, and you'll see that he does it in a few minutes. Actually, tell them what they're doing good. Support them and encourage them before you deal with some issues that might have to be dealt with. And then finally, like Peter and Paul in all their letters, he says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. You'll notice in all the letters, actually, mercy is just found in First and Second Timothy, but grace and peace, uh, Paul, uh, Peter, and, and also John now is actually using this blessing as he's ministering to the people that he's teaching. You see, the thing is, is this blessing that he's bestowing upon them is, is, is something that each and every one of us need. You see, grace is God's unmerited and undeserved kindness. It's basically the, the easy definition is getting what we don't deserve. That's God's grace. And then mercy is God's compassion and his willingness to forgive sin. And you've all heard that shortened up to say mercy is actually not getting what you do deserve. So grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And then peace, particularly in this time, this idea of peace was wholeness and well-being in life in all of its aspects. And this is, this is John saying to them and, and, the, and the, the people that he's speaking to, the people that he loves, saying, listen, I want these blessings for you. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. Have you ever noticed that whenever they say this, grace always comes first? You never see, may God's mercy and grace be with you. It's always grace and mercy. That's because it's through God's grace that mercy and peace are even possible. Grace has to come first. And then through that, and he also clarifies it, clarifies it here, this grace, mercy, and peace, it's not from John, but it's actually from God the Father and from his Son, Jesus Christ. That's where we get these things. Grace comes through Jesus. And once we get a little bit of grace in our life, then we can finally have that mercy and peace that comes through God as well. Amen? So then he continues on in verse 4. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. Remember now he's actually telling them what they're doing good. He's actually saying, listen, it's not all bad. You guys are doing a lot of great things. I appreciate what you're doing. So apparently at some point, because John is starting this letter with kind of an exclamation of joy because his children are walking the way they should be walking. How many know that as a parent, it is exciting to see your kids walking the way that you've taught them, that you've brought them up? And that's, that's John. He's excited. He says, listen, I rejoiced greatly to find some of you walking in the truth like you should be. So at some point, he's either, he's either with them and he's observed it or he's heard. He's got letters written to him telling him that, that some of the children that, that, that he's speaking to right now, they actually are walking in truth. They are obeying the commandments of God. And he uses this point in his letter, at this point of encouragement to kick, kick it off because he knows he needs to address an issue. 
But if you've ever dealt with somebody, if all you come at them with is negative, then all they feel, it, it becomes not conviction for them to get, grow to a better place. It just ends up being pure condemnation the whole time. We have to remind people that, you know what? It's not all bad. You're doing some things good. We all have areas to improve. How many of you guys have areas in your life that you need to improve? I know I do. Probably more than I would like to admit. We all have areas we'd like, we need to improve, but it doesn't mean we're doing all bad in every area. So he wants to let them know, listen, everything's not bad. We're going to have to deal with something. I, wanna, I want to, to guard you against something. But listen, some of you guys are doing great. You're walking in the truth. You're being obedient, just like I taught you, just like Jesus taught us to do. They were walking in truth and being obedient to God. And the truth is, is this is what John wanted for all the churches. that They would just walk in truth. And it's great to hear that some of these guys were doing that. Amen. And then he goes on <clears throat> and says, And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. John's addressing the church now. Like we said, if, we, if we're on the same page with most scholars, this dear lady is not some individual lady, but it's actually the church that he's dealing with, this local church that he's speaking to. He says, listen, um, I want to remind you that what I'm about to command you is not something new. This isn't a new commandment. I'm not pulling this out of the blue, but matter of fact, this is the very commandment that we had from the very beginning. That we love one another. And you remember that he, he went through this in 1 John as well, right? He reminded them, listen, this isn't a new commandment that you love one another. This commandment that we have is the one that, that's been there from, from the beginning. And John is always apt to remind us that loving your brothers is a very big deal. It's important. His first letter in 1 John 3.11, he said, For this is the message that we have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Almost the exact same, same phrasing as he has here. And John taught this in, in, the, in the gospel as well. John 15.12, uh, this is what Jesus taught. And this is why John teaches it. He says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. This has been the commandment from the beginning. But when we say beginning, it's not just the beginning of the gospel. This is like the beginning beginning. Because in the beginning, we see that God is love. God's very nature is love. And that's who we're supposed to be imitating, is God. From the very beginning, we should be looking like him, just as one of God's very defining characteristics is love as Christians. The defining characteristic that we should have is also love. The Bible says that we should know one another by our love. They should know us by our love for one another. It should be a calling card for each and every one of us. If somebody walks by you, they should be, oh, I think I got some love on me. <laughs> it should rub off. That should be who we are. It defines who we are. We should be known by our love. And that's what he's saying. Listen, at church, this is not, I'm not writing you a new commandment. This is the commandment that's always been that we love one another. And he goes on. In case you were wondering what he's speaking about, what does he mean by love? He explains it. He says, this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment just as you have heard from the beginning so that you, so that you should walk in it. So John makes it clear of what love is. It's walking in the commandments of God. 
He defines Christian love just like he does in 1 John. In 1 John 5, 2 through 3, it says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. That's how we we know that we have love is if we're obeying God's commandment, which was to love one another. When we're walking in love, when we're being obedient to Christ, then we are going to love one another because that's what we were commanded to do. But even more importantly, when you were born again, you were made brand new. The old junk was pulled out and you got a new spirit inside of you, which was the spirit of Christ, which is love. That's what should be coming out of you. And the truth is, is that love is evidence for God abiding in you and you abiding in him. Like I said, it's a defining characteristics. If you are born again, then you should love. It's, it's what defines who you are now because he has changed you. And the reality is, is if you love God, you will keep his commandments. That's why Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? But if you love God and you believe he is who he is, said he is, he'll do what he says he's going to do. If you believe in him and you love him because he loves you, then you're going to do what he says. You're going to follow his commandments. You ever notice that in your own personal life that if you have a boss that you really like, it's much easier to do what they say because you respect them. And the same is true with God the Father, except for it's more than just respect. It's real love. If you really love him, that you're going to want to do what he wants you to do because you want to please the people you love. And you want to please God. And so that means that this also involves loving one another. That is one of his commandments, is to love one another. This is so important for us to understand It's why I always talk about it in church that we're a family. Church shouldn't just be a place you go on Sunday. It shouldn't just be a a, a checklist that you hit and never speak to the people that you go there. Going to church anonymously is not the way it's supposed to be done. We're supposed to have relationships with one another so that we can encourage one another and build one another up and walk alongside one another when things are going bad and when things are tough. We're supposed to love one another. We're supposed to care about one another. I'll read it again. 1 John 3.11 For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. And that's where we come to the conclusion that love for God and love for others are actually interrelated. You can't love God if you don't love others. And the reality is, is you can't really love others if you don't love God. We actually get our ability to really love from God. The Bible says we love because he first loved us. And that's what's important. And our love for God is the basis for any and every other manifestation of love in our lives. That's where it comes from. Then in 2 John Verse 7, he says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Is my clicker not working? There we go. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Christ, Jesus Christ in the flesh is such a one as deceiver and the Antichrist. 
So basically what he's saying is, is this is related to the verses before. He's talking about love. This isn't a new commandment. We need to love one another. We need to do these things. We need to show the real love of Christ. We need to be showing the real gospel and obeying his commandments and walking in the truth. Why? Because many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, because such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. So now we're getting into the, the meat of this letter, the primary purpose of this letter. It's to warn against false teachers and deceivers whom John refers to as Antichrists. It's uh, one of those things is, is these are people that are just against Christ. They're, they're, they're opposing Christ. They're teaching something that's, that's alternative to the gospel that has already been preached. When Paul said, if anybody comes, even an angel comes and preaches something else to you, they should be accursed. And these people are the very reason these Christians need to walk in truth and be obedient to the Father because otherwise they can be swept away. The truth is, is that for every Christian, there is a real danger from these deceivers because they are teaching something that is in opposition to the core tenets of the Christian faith. And in this case, they are teaching that Jesus did not come in the flesh. You see, the core of the gospel is that Jesus came as a man. You want to know why that's important? If he didn't come as a man, how could he represent us? He had to come as a man to represent us, to be like us in every way. That's what the scripture says in the book of Hebrews. He was like us in every way. To be our high priest, to be a substitution for us, he had to be just like us. He had to experience everything we experience. It's in, that, that's one of the core tenets of our faith is Jesus came as a man. And then he lived and then he died and then he rose again. But these deceivers, these pretenders, were coming in and, and they're pretending to be Christian teachers. They're pretending to have the truth, to know the truth, but they were actually enemies of Christ. John says they're the Antichrist because they're teaching something different. Because that's the danger of false teachings as they can lead you astray. John says that we must be on guard against these deceivers so that we don't lose what we have worked for. That's what it says here in 2 John 8-9. through 9. He says, watch yourself so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. And whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So that's the danger of these false teachings is they can lead us astray and we can get a hold of something that's not really the gospel anymore. John says we must be on guard against these deceivers so that we don't lose what we have worked for and we don't lose the full reward that we should receive. As I was studying this, I found out that there's a couple of different opinions on what the theological stake, if you will, is of what he's talking about. The first would say that uh, what's, on, on, uh, what's at risk here is only your full reward. That's what he, they, they say based on verse 8, watch yourself so that you may not lose what you have worked for, but instead may win a full reward. If you don't watch yourself, you may not get your full reward. So some say that this isn't a salvation issue that John is talking about, but just your full reward. But then if you read verse 9, it sort of seems like it's a salvation issue. He says, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. So there are different viewpoints on this. But as far as I can see it, if you put your faith in the, wrong in the wrong Jesus, how can you expect to receive the reward that the real Jesus offers? 
And I think that's the real danger of what's going on here. If you put your faith in the wrong Jesus, the fake Jesus, not the Jesus that Paul and Peter and John preached, but some other Jesus that kind of looks like him, how can you expect to receive the true reward? But it seems that to John, the important thing is that you persevere in the correct teachings, that you persevere and abide. Whoever abides in the teachings... What teaching is he talking about? His teaching, the one that, uh, the same one that Peter and Paul, the, all the apostles were teaching. If you abide in those teachings, you'll have both the Father and the Son. But if you don't, he says, then you don't have God. You see, perseverance and abiding in that teaching is what's important. You, have to, you can't believe it one day and the next not believe it. You're going to run into some problems. In order to, to, to secure your eternal reward, you have to remain in the faith. That's how Paul referred to it. Is that we have to remain in the faith. We have to re- continue abiding in his teachings. And regardless of how you interpret it, for John, and as a result to us, the danger is real, and it's something we should take seriously. You know, if personally for me, I would rather err on the side of caution (laughs) and make sure I'm doing what I'm told and abiding like I'm supposed to. The truth is, is that Jesus said this. He said that, you know what, there are some who are going to stand before me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this for you? And he's going to say, what? Away from me, I never knew you. Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we heal the sick in your name? But I never knew you. I'd rather err on the side of caution and make sure I'm abiding in the teaching that comes straight from the, from the Bible. Amen? And we must remain vigilant and on guard, constant guard, because there's no place for complacency. The truth is that there's always going to be false teachings that are come around and try to attempt to lure you away, to entice you away if you're not careful. It's also why you need to know your word. How are you going to know if a teaching is false if you've never read your Bible? How are you going to know if somebody is telling you something that's not accurate and according to the word of God, if you, if you don't know the word of God, you need to be reading it. That's how you, that's how you uh, be vigilant and be on guard is to know your word. So when someone comes by and says, that, oh no, you have to do these different works to be saved, you can go, hey, that's not what the Bible says. Or they come by and say that, no, no, Jesus never really came in the flesh. He was something else. And you can say, no, that's not what the Scripture says. You need to know your word so you can be on guard because the truth is there are people that are very clever and they can make an argument for whatever they want to make and they can even pick and choose different Scriptures to try to convince you of something that's untrue. And if you don't know your word, it's going to seem right. It's going to seem okay. The reason I know this is because I like apologetics and I like getting on and watching these atheists and Christians debate. And I've gotten done listening to an atheist going, dang, that was a good argument. (laughs) That made sense. Fortunately, I know my scripture. I know what the word says and I know what's wrong. And I wait till the next guy comes up because I want to hear how he's going to refute it. And the other guy blows him away. I'm like, that was a good argument too. But it's amazing Intelligent people can make very strong arguments for stuff that aren't true. And if you don't know the truth, then you can easily be deceived. And that's not who we want to be. We need to remain vigilant. We need to be, remain on guard. And then 
John goes on with his warning in verse 10 through 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So after the warning, John shares with us a little bit of application in our life. He says, if anyone comes and he's not bringing the teaching that John shared and the other apostles were preaching, then don't receive them in your home or don't even greet them. Because if you do this, you're actually being an accomplice to their deception. You're actually being complicit in the things that they're doing. Now, we have to be careful and understand what this actually means. Because some have taken this to mean that if a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door or if a Mormon comes to your door and you invite them in, somehow you're being complicit to what they're doing. If a Mormon comes to your door and you're prepared and you need to be prepared and know your word, it's okay to invite them in and begin to minister to them. I don't think that's what this is talking about. If a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, if you're prepared, you need to be prepared. Like I said, they'll come with clever arguments. That's the problem with, with these things, uh, the, these other religions. They're so close to Christianity that they can look like the real thing if you don't know to spot the differences. Mormons in particular, they believe in a completely different Jesus. The Book of Mormon says that the Jesus they believe in came from um, Jerusalem, whereas the Jesus we believe in came from Bethlehem. They're, they're, they're literally different Jesuses <laughs> if you read about what they are. And, and that's what's happening here, right? This Jesus that this, these people are preaching, he wasn't actually man. So you need to be prepared. But if you invite them in your home and you want to minister to them, or, or if you just know some people that are, that are Mormons or some other religion, doesn't matter what it is, and you want to be hospitable, invite them into your house so you can develop a relationship with them or any of those things, there's nothing wrong with that. You're not being complicit in what they're doing. Because you have to understand the time that's going on right now, uh, traveling preachers and philosophers were very common. And when they would come into a city, they would need support from the local congregations or whoever they're dealing with. So, so Christian teachers that would come in, they would come in, they would reach out to the local congregation and say, hey, do you have a place I can stay? And, and they would rely on them for support, for food, shelter, and all this while they were ministering to the local churches. This is what John is talking about. If somebody is coming in trying to bring a false doctrine to teach in your city, you don't want to support their ministry because then you become complicit. If you give them a place to stay, if you give them a platform, if you give them food and shelter so that they can preach this false gospel to your church and to the people around him, then you become complicit. It's why I'm so very careful with who I allow in the church to minister. I only allow people in that I know that I have relationships with. When other people come to me and they, they ask about, if they know so-and-so and could they come in and do this, I try to be nice about it. But the ultimate answer is no. If I don't have a relationship with them, I can't let them in because I'm responsible for what gets preached up here. If I don't know them, I don't know what they're going to say or what they believe, that's my responsibility, and I take that seriously. We all should. But the reality is, is that just having them come to your house or having dinner with them, particularly if you know what's going on and you're trying to build a relationship and you want to eventually share the gospel with them, that, that's not what this is talking about. What this is talking about is supporting the works of those who are going to bring false teaching. And the truth is, is he's actually pretty harsh about it. He doesn't just say, no, don't, uh, 
don't let them into your house because don't even give them any greeting. And I'm like, dang, John, that seems kind of harsh. But the reality is, is he doesn't even want you to give the impression that you support what they're doing. There can be no doubt or confusion that we're supporting people who are bringing a false gospel, who are bringing false teaching or false religion. As Christians, that's what we're called to do is stand for the truth. And we don't support people who would bring something other than that. Amen? So like I said, if you invite people into your home with different beliefs now, don't worry. You're not uh, risking your salvation or your full reward if you're just inviting people into your house. It's only if you're supporting their false teaching that you run into an issue. Amen? And then we're going to finish here, 2 John 12 through 13, as we wrap it up. He says, Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face, so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. So he's finishing this letter, and this is actually kind of cool. Because he says, listen, this is some stuff I need to deal with right away, but I have a lot of stuff to talk about. So I plan on coming down there. I would rather speak to you face to face. Because relationships are important. It's important that we get together, that we see one another. And John says, listen, this is something we need to address because it's important. But I, I have much to say to you. But I hope to make it down there to be with you. I'd rather not write in a letter. I'd rather speak to you face to face. And I think that's an encouragement to all of us. The truth is we should all be encouraged to see each other face to face, to speak to one another. I get it. Sometimes texts and the electronic means of getting together, it's one of the ways we communicate, and, and that's okay. But don't make it the only way. It's important that we have relationship. That's why this lunch that we're going to right after church today is important because it's relationships that we're building. And then he says, I hope to come to you, talk face to face, so that our joy may be complete. The truth is, John has great confidence in the church that he's ministering to, and he believes in them. He believes in their devotion, their obedience to Christ. He says, listen, I know that you guys are walking with them. And, uh, but he, he's excited to come see them because they will both will have joy about seeing and being with one another. And then finally, he says, the children of your elect sister greet you. It's very similar to that wording in the beginning, right? To the elect lady and her children. And then he says, the children of your elect sister greet you. And that's interesting. And I think it's where they're coming from, why they get the idea that this elect lady and her children is referring to the church and not to a specific lady. Because if this was a specific lady, don't you think you'd have said, your elect sister and her children greet you? He's like, nah, your sister doesn't care much about you, but her children, they like you, so they're, they're concerned about what you're doing. But if you think of it in the context of a church, it makes sense, right? He's addressing the entire church and the members of the church, and then he says, the children of your elect sister, your sister church, the members of your sister church, they greet you as well. Now, I don't know what the right answer is, whether it's, it seems to me that that makes sense. He's actually talking to a church and not a specific lady. But like I said, I don't think it matters as far as the application in our life. Stuff like this is neat and it's interesting about how they write and learning about this stuff and what it could mean. But it's the teaching that's important. It's the application in our life that's important. 
to make sure that we love one another. They were walking in obedience and we're being very careful about the people that we support and their teaching because we don't want to accidentally be deceiving others by promoting a false Jesus. Amen? So we need to be on guard. We need to remain vigilant. And most of all, just love one another. Because if you love people, you're not going to be actively complicit in deceiving them. Amen? <laughs> Amen. Let's go ahead and bow our head.